became a Christian as an adult. And I remember going to church and, and just some of the things that would be done that are just kind of a given are kind of strange in our culture, such as me coming up and speaking. Like in our culture, how often do we do that? Do, okay, now somebody's going to come up and, and speak for, you know, two hours. No, uh, just a half hour. There's a lot of things that are strange, but... Um, Jesus' word is a word of life. It really does give us life. And uh, his, his teaching gives us life. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to walk through a, a story um, that we encounter about the life of Jesus in one of the uh, Gospels. Um, that's one of the uh, accounts of Jesus' life that we find in the New Testament. And so we're going to be looking in the book of Matthew. And so if you have a Bible... Um, turn to the book of Matthew. That is the first book in what is called the New Testament. And we're going to look at a story that takes place in Jesus' life um, in Matthew chapter 4. So that's where we're going to be camping uh, this morning. If you, if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to, to grab one. You get some ushers back there. If you need a Bible, just put up your hand. And Again, it's in the uh, New Testament, the first book in the New Testament, book of Matthew. I'm going to actually start just at the end of chapter 3. And it says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. In chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, and so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will just bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Jesus, this is your word. This is about your life. Um, you're not a philosophy. You're not a worldview. You're not an idea, but you're personal. You are present with us this morning. And so we pray that you would help us to lean in that you would help to concentrate distracted minds, soften hard hearts, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, a heart to receive from you, and then the courage to respond to whatever you teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a passage that we're going to look at this morning. Now, right from the get-go, let me just lay out three quick observations. Here's the first observation. Jesus is tempted. And we need to get that. 
We read in uh, the book of Hebrews, very quickly, it says in verse 15, chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest, as referring to Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now, this is key for us to get, is that Jesus that we worship understands temptation. Right? He gets us. And so that means when we, when we pray... We are not praying to a God who is far, far away, sitting on some cloud with his eyes half closed, kind of not really paying attention. But we pray and we lay out the stuff that's going on in our lives to one who gets us, who gets temptation. And I don't know about you, but that's, that's, a, that's a, a huge difference maker for me. The God we worship is acquainted with temptation, with suffering, and that means we can lay it before him and, and he gets it. That's the first observation. second observation is that Jesus is tempted by the devil. And for some of you uh, this morning, the moment I say the devil, that's problematic. You'd be like, really, David, the devil? <laughs> it's 2016. The devil, the guy with the pitchfork and the tail. That's who you're referring to? Come on. Well, here's the thing. The Bible and Jesus affirms the reality, the existence of the devil, right from the beginning, right through Scripture. And so Jesus recognizes the reality of the devil, and if you recognize the reality of Jesus, then you need to take the reality of the devil seriously, okay? The devil's actions are consistent right from the beginning. His, his actions are to oppose God, to destroy God's creation, to destroy relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other. He's in the business of wrecking marriages, of destroying families, breaking up friendships. Devil doesn't have a lot of creativity. He's not a very creative being. He doesn't need to be. His old tricks work quite well. Um, and his job is to, is to drive wedges between people. And I think recognizing the reality of the devil helps us understand a lot of what's going on in our world today. Not everything. There's a lot of stuff in our own hearts that can cause lots of problems. But I think the, recognizing the reality of a personal malevolent force in this world helps us understand, especially if we're a Christian, it helps you understand those moments where you experience this overwhelming oppression and force in your life that's kind of messing you up. And I bet some of you can ex share your experiences of that. And though the devil can still mess us up, what Scripture teaches us is that he is a defiant yet defeated foe because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay? So a lot of mess can happen between now and the return of Jesus, but he is defeated ultimately because of the cross. Now, here's the last observation just before we jump in. And it says, we need to understand this passage I just read in light of the larger passage. Uh, we can't just rip it out. Jesus is telling, he's, he, this passage is revealing to us something very important about who Jesus is. And in particular, it's linking Jesus to the Old Testament. And a lot of people ask the question, what is the relationship between Jesus and the God of the Old Testament? This is very important. What Jesus is doing is he's linking him himself. The story of Jesus is linking Jesus with the Old Testament. We read in uh, the book of Exodus how the people of God was delivered by God through 
the, uh, the Red Sea, right? And right after the Exodus, where does God lead the people of Israel? For some of you who know the Old Testament, where does He lead them? Yeah, into the desert, right? And so here you have Jesus also passing through water. That's why I began with the baptism. And immediately being led into the desert where he's going to experience temptation, just like Israel did. And so Jesus is saying something pretty important about himself. He's saying he's actually taking on the identity of Israel. And unlike the Israel in the Old Testament, which when they faced temptation, they failed. The question is, is how is Jesus going to do in the face of temptation. Okay, so that's kind of the background. So we read that Jesus, is, is, uh, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and he is tempted. And no, notice when the devil shows up, when Jesus is hungry. And I'm sure Derwin and Angel are going to talk about this next week. But if you're married, you have to know that when you're hungry, you're prone to all sorts of temptations. I had a friend of mine, he was a, he was a, um, a psychiatrist, and uh, he just said to me, because, you know, Karen, my wife Karen and I, we were like arguing, and, and, and he says, are you arguing mostly before supper? I said, yeah, how did you know that? He says, you know, most of your arguments are going to take place just before supper. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, you got low blood sugar, you've been working all day. He goes, I'll tell you, he goes, if you can just hit pause, get through supper, you won't argue as much. And so invariably, that's what Karen and I said. We were just before supper, and like, ah! And we said, you know, let's just press pause. We had supper, and then afterwards, it's like, what, were, what, what was the big deal? Because we're often prone when we're tired and when we're hungry to temptation. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and it says he is hungry. Now look what the tempter says to Jesus. He says, if you are the Son of God. Now we just read in chapter 3 that Jesus, when he's baptized, he comes up, the Spirit of God comes upon him, a voice from heaven, God the Father, Yahweh says, this is my Son who I'm with whom I'm well pleased. You know, it's just this great affirmation. This is my Son whom I love. The tempter comes up to Jesus when he's hungry and says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. The main tool of the evil one, and we need to get this, his main tool is to sow doubt in our lives towards God. He's a sower of doubt, and he'll try to cause us to doubt two things, God's reality and God's goodness. Okay? Okay? If you are the Son of God, we read way back in Genesis chapter 3, what does the serpent say to the woman? Did God really say you should not eat from any tree in the garden? Which is not what God said. So there's doubt and lies mixed together. Here the evil one says to uh, Jesus, if you are really the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Okay, so what is the temptation here? What kind of temptation is Jesus facing here? Now I have to give you full disclosure. Much of what I'm going to be looking at today, a lot of it, there's kind of a Henry Nouwen theme going on here, is drawn from what I think is one of the best books that explains this passage. And so a book by Henry Nouwen called In the Name of Jesus. If you're in any position of leadership, man, this is mandatory reading. And you can read it in an afternoon. It's not very long. 
but it's called In the Name of Jesus. So what is the temptation that Jesus is experiencing here? I think it's the temptation to be relevant. The devil says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, then hey, Jesus, do something useful. If you're the Son of God, it should not be difficult for you to take stones, make them into bread. Jesus, you're hungry. Do something practical. Get on it. Take these stones. Use your Son of God power. Make it into bread. Eat the bread. You're not hungry. Problem solved. And you know what? There's a lot of hungry people in this world. While you're at it, why don't you continue to turn stones into bread and feed the hungry? People are starving, Jesus. If you don't, if you don't do something as practical as turning stones into bread, then honestly, what good are you? You're useless. You're irrelevant. Now, I'll tell you this. When I look at the Western church today, I think the church's biggest fear is becoming irrelevant. I mean, this is what we're told over and over again, right? Well, the church is a, is a product of a bygone age. I mean, who, honestly, who gathers on a Sunday morning when there's great, you know, sports going on, you know, to listen to some pastor drone on and on for 35 minutes? I mean, come on. The church is useless. The church is irrelevant. It's being pushed into the margins of society. It is irrelevant in a changing world. And so what does the church do in response to this? We wave our hands and we say, no, 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 we're not irrelevant. We're, we're, we matter. We do a lot of good. We, we help the poor. We do this. We, 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 we make a case to say how relevant we really are. And we say, you know what, we're cool. We're cool. We have a website. We're on the internet, right? We matter. And here's the thing, I'll tell you. The more we push as a church to be relevant, the more it escapes us. And Jesus' response to the devil, I think, is a clue for how our response needs to be. What does Jesus say to the devil? He says, people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what's he saying? He's saying there's something more important than being relevant. And do you know what that is? Is being loved. There's something more important than being relevant, and that is being loved. And you think about it, what shaped Jesus' life? Was it a push to be relevant? Or, 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 or was it his relationship with the one who said to him, this is my son whom I love? It is Jesus' love relationship with his father that shaped his life and his ministry. And it's interesting, after um, Jesus' resurrection, there's a scene where Jesus encounters one of his disciples, Peter. Now, Peter had messed up, and, and, and so Jesus is kind of restoring him. And, and Jesus looks at Peter, and he asks him one question. Do you remember the question he asked him? 
do you love me? All right, he doesn't say to Peter, Peter, how can you maximize your influence in this world? He doesn't say to Peter, Peter, how many people take you seriously? How many Twitter followers do you have, Peter? Peter, what is going to be your legacy? What kind of results can you bring to the table? Are those questions? No, he's just asked one question. Peter, do you love me? I think we need to get this. Do you, Jesus says, do you love the one who first loved you and who died for you? And I think we need to get this because this love is powerful. This love is a game changer. It is this love for Jesus and the love of Jesus that led the early church to go out onto the streets at night and pick up abandoned, discarded baby girls. In the Roman Empire, girls were, were, were seen as uh, extraneous, were seen as useless, were seen as, as, as essentially property. You could have a baby girl and there could be nothing wrong with her and it was legal for you to kill her. Couldn't do that with males. There had to be something deformed and then you could kill the male. But for a girl, you could just throw her outside and that's what happened. They were just exposed. And it was Christians in the early church in the Roman Empire that would go street to street to street and pick up all these exposed girls, baby girls, and raise them because they knew that every child, every baby was made in God's image and had value. And it was the love of Jesus and it was the love for Jesus that compelled them to do this. It was the love of Jesus and the love for Jesus that led to the creation of 80% of the world's hospitals were created by Christians, were built by Christians. So it is the love of Jesus that does make a huge change in this world. But it's the love of Jesus and the love for Jesus that drives us, not this push to become relevant or popular. And I'll tell you, if we fall into the relevant game, it will kill us. No, not even talking about the church, but just this push in our culture today to be relevant, to, to, to somehow do something to make our lives matter. I think it's going to kill us. It's going to kill the church. If you think about it, do we honestly think as a church that we can be as cool as Apple? Right? Do we honestly think as a church that we can take phrases like dying to yourself, being crucified daily, and spin it and make it cool? We, we can't. <laughs> I, you know, people write articles, and maybe I, I'm, I shouldn't say this. This is the David's pet peeve sermon. Um, <laughs> People write articles and they often say, what does the world really think about the church? How does the church perceive by the world? And honestly, I don't care. I care about the world. I care about people. But man, if I live that game by saying, okay, how do you see me? How do you see me now? How, now how do you see me? Am I cool yet? Am I cool yet? Do you like me yet? It will kill me. We can't fall into that game. And I, and I see the church falling into it. The church has never, ever really been cool. 
the church has never, ever been really popular. That's just the way it is. But in the church is where we meet Jesus and he's life, right? Okay, let's look at the second temptation. In the second temptation, look in your Bibles. It says, then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. It says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will concern his angels concerning you. He will command his angels concerning you. They'll lift, uh, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. How does the devil tempt Jesus here? Well, he tempts Jesus to put on a religious show. That's the second temptation. And this, this passage is interesting. You notice how it's full of holy things. He takes Jesus to the holy city. He puts Jesus on top of a holy temple. And then he has read holy scriptures. And so what's going on here? Well, in the first temptation, Jesus is tempted to be relevant and practical. And the second temptation is for Jesus to become super spiritual. In the first temptation, he speaks to Jesus in his weakness. Now he speaks to Jesus in his strength. And he says, look, look, Jesus. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, well, people got to know this. People got to know that you're the Son of God. You got to make yourself, you got to make a splash, Jesus. People, if you're the Son of God, this ought to be a big deal. So I got a plan. I got a plan. It's going to look like this. All right, you with me? Jesus, what we're going to do is we're going to take you to the holy city. And then, Jesus, we're going to put you, get this, on top of the temple. <laughs> on top of that. You're standing on top of the temple. You know, stand like this or like this. People are going to gather around. They're like, what's going on? Who's standing on top of the temple? What's, this, this has got to be a big deal. It's weird standing on top of the temple, all right? Okay, so here's the thing. Stand on top of the temple. We're going to set up some floodlights, right? And they're going to be going back and forth. We've got different color lights, okay? We've hired Coldplay, Okay. <laughs> We brought in Coldplay. And so what, what they're going to do is while these, these lights are going back and forth and the crowd starts to gather because you're standing on top of a temple, we get, we've invited Coldplay. They're going to be doing Sky Full of Stars. <laughs> it's going to look awesome, man. You stand there, Sky Full of Stars, lights going back and forth. We're going to have helicopters filming this from up top. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be awesome. It's going to be broadcast live. Crowds are going to gather, Jesus. Okay. At the right time, I'll cue you. At the right time, this is what you got to do. Stand on top of the temple, jump. You jump, I'll cue the band. They're going to go from sky full of stars into adventure of a lifetime, right? Adventure of a lifetime, the band's going to be playing. You're going to fall. If all goes well, angels, according to your word, are going to pick you up. and going to lift you in the sky. You're gonna, it, it, the band's going to be rocking. People will know Jesus, and yet, then you're the son of God. It is going to be awesome, and there will be no doubt in anyone's mind that you are the Son of God. What do you think, Jesus? That's the plan. That's the temptation. Okay, <laughs> let's unpack this. Have you noticed that the devil tempts Jesus with the Bible? That the devil uses Scripture to tempt Jesus? Talk about a warning. That's <laughs> huge. I think about this. Some of the most radical evils in the world, in the history of the world, have been done when the Bible's been taken and its meaning twisted. 
And, and all sorts of horrible things happen. You think about slavery. The Bible's been used. The Bible's been twisted and used to promote slavery. The Bible's been twisted and used to promote the oppression of women. The Bible's been twisted and used to prop up dictatorship governments all throughout history. And I think that's just a warning for us this morning that you and I, man, we not only need to read the Bible, but we need to know how to read it well. Otherwise, man, we can end up into all sorts of strange places. So the devil tempts Jesus with Scripture. He tempts him to be spectacular. And notice Jesus' response. He says, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, it's interesting. The word test implies to force God's hand, to manipulate God, or even to play around with God. And what is Jesus saying here? He's essentially saying this, that God is never, ever a means to an end, even if that end is spectacular. And a lot of people look at God that way. They, they, they see God as a means to make their life more interesting. Or God is, uh, is, is a means for me to be spiritual. Or, or God is a means for me to become a man of God. But God is never a means. I think I shared this with you before. I've preached here so often. But one of the things that drove me crazy is I was uh, running with a, a, this guy. I was going to say a friend, but he wasn't really a friend. But we were running together. Um, and... Uh, and he just kind of, you know, I don't know if because I was a pastor, he's just like, well, Pastor David, you know, the only thing I want to do in my life is the most important thing is to become a man of God. And I'm saying, well, that's stupid. And he stopped. He goes, what do you mean that's stupid? I should be a man of God. Isn't that what life is? I said, no. I said, you could be so focused on becoming on what you think is a man of God, you can miss God. God is never a means to an end. He's always the end. He's never a means to make our life more interesting. And I hate sometimes when Christians will say, you know, become a Christian and then your life will be better. We don't be, turn to God so our life will be better. We turn to God because in Him is life. Right? So He's never a means to an end. And secondly, Scripture is never an end in itself. The devil used the Bible to manipulate but Scripture is never an end in itself. Scripture, again, always points us to God. And sometimes I'll see books. Maybe you've come across these books and they'll say, you know, 10 business principles from the Bible, right? Relational secrets exposed in the Bible, right? And we read the Bible to learn about some, you know, read the book of Proverbs to learn some interesting pieces of wisdom. Run away from those books. If you have them, throw them out. Because the Bible is never a series of principles that help improve our lives. It's never a self-help book. The Bible is God's revelation of himself and an invitation for us to know and be known by him. Right? That's key. So we don't mess with God's word and his holiness. So here's the last temptation. Look at what it says in the passage. It says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And there's splendor. He says, all this I will give you if you'll bow down and worship me. And it's interesting. The devil, have you noticed in this passage, the devil leads Jesus higher and higher up. From the wilderness, he leads him on top of a temple. Now we're told he takes him to a very, very high mountain. 
And I think it's a good warning for us to remember that the devil always leads us upwards. The devil will lead us up the corporate ladder. The devil, his focus is, 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 is leading you up so you're on top of things. Where the way of God is always the way downwards. The way of God is always to be downwardly mobile. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus down into the waters of baptism, into the wilderness of temptation. The Gospels, the story how, how God the Son entered into the mess and the mire of this world, into the details of our lives. And in Jesus' economy, everything that is exalted is brought low, and everything low is exalted. So what's going on in this temptation? In Jesus' hunger, the devil tempts Jesus in his weakness to get practical and relevant. On the temple, he tempts Jesus in his strength to be spectacular and to manipulate people's deepest religious desires. Here, on the highest mountain, what does the devil do? He goes after Jesus' heart. And in particular, he goes after his heart for the world. The devil says to Jesus, Look at the world, Jesus. It can all be yours if you would only worship me. So how is this a temptation? I think it's a temptation to be powerful. It's a temptation to be powerful. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, hang on. Isn't Jesus already powerful? Haven't we just been singing how Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth? Isn't, isn't Jesus, you know, sovereign over all, crea all creation was made through him? And so couldn't Jesus simply look at the devil and go, duh, you know, you don't, <laughs> I don't need to get this from you. I'm Lord. I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. I don't need you to offer this to me. It's mine by right. So how in the world is this a temptation? It's a temptation to choose power over love. To choose to be served over serving. Let me explain. It is a temptation to use raw power to bring about change. It's interesting. This is a temptation, I'll tell you, the church has struggled with and still struggles with. We say to ourselves as Christians, sometimes we say, we say you know what, if only, if only the church had enough power, oh, then think of all the good we can do. If only we had the right people in positions of government, well, then, 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 then we, could, we could bring lots of change and lots of good to this world. Now, I'm not against people running for office or anything. If that's your calling, that's fine. Here's where the danger is. If we think that simply through the exercise of power, that simply by, by, by putting the right people in the right positions of government, if we think we can do that and make Canada great again, we're in trouble, right? Any, this is where church history is so important. Anytime the church gets too cozy with the government, with politics, it never ends well. Right? From Constantine to, oh, I don't know, 
something south of the border. Um, <laughs> now, it's, but it's a strong temptation, isn't it? It's a huge temptation. And why is it a temptation? It's because power and control are a lot easier to exercise than love. It's easier for me to say, Lincoln, I'm your boss. Do what I'm telling you to do than to actually do the hard work of being friends and trusting one another, being vulnerable with one another, you know, caring for one another, opening up, sharing with, with one another. It's easier for me to just say, do it or you're fired, right? Power and control will always be easier than love. But notice what Jesus says. He says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And Jesus says to the tempter, he says, no, he says, I will not be that kind of ruler. I will not rule through power and through coercion, but I will... I myself will be ruled by a love higher than the immediate situation, higher than the needs of this world. I will be ruled by the intimate love for God the Father who loves me and whom I serve. Now, I've talked about this, I've taught on this, about power. The Bible's understanding of power is very different than the world's understanding of power. The world's understanding of power is, is like, okay, Ron, we got Ron and myself. There's only so much power. And so if I have power, you don't. You have power, I don't. It's a zero-sum game. If I have power, you have to have less because there's only so much power going around. But that's not God's vision of power. God's vision of power is always expansive because God's infinite. And so it's like, there's not, it's not a, a limited amount, but it is, it is, it is infinite and the way God operates in God's economy, his, his power is not coercive, but God's power is always self-giving. And you see God exercising his power by disadvantaging himself and advantaging others. That's the nature of God's power. And we see this all through Jesus' life with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane facing the, the task of bearing the weight of the sin of the world. He says, Father, if you can take this cup from me, good. But if not, you know what? Not my will, but yours be done. And after Jesus' resurrection, again in his encounter with Peter, he says this to Peter in John chapter 21, verse 18. He says to Peter, he says, In all truth I tell you, when you were young, you put on your belt and walked where you liked. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will put a belt around you and take you where you would rather not go. And when I read that, that's not the message that I like to hear. Because I like to think the older I get, the more in control I am over my life. The older I get, the more I can manage my portfolio. The more I can, you know, lay things out for my retirement. The, the, the older I get, the more I am in control. I can be the master of my own destiny. But that's not the way of Jesus. And that's not the life that we're invited into. Because the life of discipleship is a life of having our arms outstretched and being led to places that, frankly, we'd probably rather not go. 
The way of discipleship is the way of the cross. It is learning how to die. How to die to ourselves and to live in Christ. So let me just ask you this as I conclude. What do you need to die to? My guess is that many of us here need to die to this need to be relevant. Now, I can go on about this, but social media is killing us. I'm not against social media, but there's aspects of social media that are killing us. And one of the things about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that, what it's doing is the whole thing is geared around saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Do you like me? Do you like me now? Have you liked this post? Do you like this post? Do you like this tweet? Have you retweeted my tweet? And, and so much of how I see myself is connected to how you're responding to me on Facebook or on social media. And this relevance game will kill you. It will hollow out your soul. And before you know it, you, you'll have no idea who you are. You're just a series of Instagram pics. That's all you are. That's, that's what you'll become. And in this desire to jump up and down and say, notice me, we forget who we are. We forget we're loved, right? And I think this, this, this push to be relevant is killing us. So do you need to die to this push to be relevant? Do you need to die for your life to be spectacular? Now, I don't know about you, but most of the meals I have are not worth taking pictures of. Right? Especially the ones I make. <laughs> and you know what? I have, much of life is, is, is kind of boring. It's kind of mundane. It's not... <laughs> I mean, so much of our lives, we, we wish our lives would be as spectacular as our Facebook profile pretends they are. Um, but they're not. And the Christian life, at the end of the day, is a long obedience in the same direction. We're in it for the long haul. Now it's full of life. It's an abundant life because of Jesus. Not because of what we're posting or what, we're, what, what we think our life ought to look like. So do we need to die for our lives to be spectacular? Here's one that speaks to me. Do you need to die to the need to be in control? So much of our lives is shaped by this push to be in control. And yet you know we have no control, right? You all know people who, who thought they had control and then got sick and stuff happened or got in an accident and their whole life changed. We have no control. And this insatiable desire to be in control, thinking that we can somehow navigate our future, we need to let that go because we have no control. But here's the thing. There is one who is in control, and he is good, and he loves you. Is that enough for you? There is one who loves you, who can be trusted, and really is as good as his son says he is, he is in control of all your days, and he may lead you with arms outstretched to places where you may not want to go, but do you trust him in this? That's the question for us this morning. 
Our lives are called to have our arms outstretched and be willing to go where perhaps we'd rather not go. Are we willing to go? Because the one who calls us is good and can be trusted. Let's pray. Lord, this, this is your word that you've been speaking to us this morning. And so we want to respond to you. We confess and we repent of this insatiable desire to be relevant, to jump up and down and make our lives matter on our own, and forgetting the fact that we are deeply loved and that is enough. We confess that uh, we've often seen you as a means to an end, to our own end, and maybe even a noble end. And yet you are never a means. You're always the whole show. And so we repent of that and we come back to you and we say, you are my all in all. And Lord, we come to you and we confess that we think, we actually act as if we have a lot more control in our lives than we really do. And so as an act of faith, we, we stretch out our arms and we say we want to die to ourselves. And we confess because you are good and you are kind and you can be trusted, even though we don't always understand what's going on, that we will have our arms outstretched and will be willing to be led wherever you lead us. That's our desire. We lay that before you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.